Hey kiddos, welcome back to Self Wife, the podcast where I typically learn to center myself, but there is a horrible humanitarian crisis slash ethnic cleansing slash genocide happening right now that our country is funding and supporting. So I continue to feel the intense social responsibility to talk about this, share about this, do what I can do to help, which is very little. I thought about skipping this week because what more can I possibly add? I continue to on my TikTok platform creators who are talking about this from experience who are either on the grounds in Gaza, taking us with them, or they are talking about this topic with empirical wisdom, lived experience, and I want to continue to platform those people. My last two episodes, episode 18 and 19, were dedicated to this topic as I continue to literally watch people on the ground in Gaza, creators like Bassan, creators like Palestia, who are reporting from the rubble about how it's been three days since they've even had a sip of water, about how Bassan lost her cat, during one of the bombings, about how they were two minutes away from a hospital that was bombed and almost died. Somebody on TikTok accurately pointed out this is the first time that we are ever actually able to witness with our two eyes and ears the victims of a genocide, the victims of an ethnic cleansing, the victims of a humanitarian crisis on the ground in Gaza. People around the world can see it because of technology, because of TikTok, and it's unreal. I just, every day... I try to get my bearings about what it's like to be alive at this time and what it's like to witness a catastrophe on this scale via the victims who are trying to survive it because we all have phones in our hands. And I can't look away. And I've shared many TikToks of people saying that they don't understand how people are posting about regular stuff right now. I am in that camp. I can't go back to a normal self-life episode yet. I can't stop thinking about this. I can't stop calling my senators and asking questions every time they answer just about the, the actual impact of calling them. You know, what does it mean to call for a ceasefire? I spoke to someone and I said, is there a certain number that, that you reach of calls incoming to where our local representatives feel that they are required to speak out against this and and there there isn't i mean what calling your senators does is lets them know where their constituents which is us stand on voting matters they're thinking about well the election that happened yesterday november 7th the midterm elections and they're just also thinking about being reinstated can they continue to serve as a public representative. That's what they're thinking about. The calls for a ceasefire doesn't mean they're going to hit a certain number and they're going to press a big red button and that's a ceasefire. And that's been plaguing me since since I released episode 18, a textbook case of genocide, where I said, if you can donate, please do, but call your representatives. And every moment since then, I've just been thinking like, but what does it actually do? And so I did have this conversation with a woman who you know, answered representing my local representative here. I'm registered to vote in Los Angeles and I'm currently staying in Las Vegas. So I'm calling both representatives and I'm just talking to whoever will talk to me and just gathering information. And I feel helpless and I know that we all do. 
I saw a very helpful video yesterday by a creator named Sola. Her handle is Sola the Gem. And she just talks about how it's money. The only thing that people in charge care about is money. And it's funny because it's always the last place my brain goes. Just because of my personal relationship and lifetime of experience with money, it's never been something that I've prioritized. And I always have to remind myself that that is the bottom line. With things like this, it happened with teaching too. Took me about five years and I was like, oh, wait a minute. This system doesn't actually support kids. It is all about money and the support goes where the money is. And if there isn't enough money, then that means that there isn't any support. You should not have to call your local politician to get them to not vote to commit genocide. You should not have to do that. There should be empathy in the hearts of the people that we fucking elected. But there isn't. You want to know why? Because these people don't care about anything but money. At this point, they have locked Palestinians in Gaza and are going to kill them in there. That is the harsh reality. That is the truth. They do not care. They lied to our face, got on fucking CNN, fucking at the podium, said that they were going to send assistance a fucking assistance to Palestinians. The biggest slap in the fucking face I've ever seen. Knowing damn well that 24 hours later, you're about to ask for $10 billion for the people that are doing what you what they need the assistance for. You guys think that's an accident? You guys think that calling your senator is going to change that? Change that fact? It's money. It's money. This is about money. It's always been about money. The only thing that works is fucking boycotts. The only thing that works is decentralizing. The only thing that works is using your fucking dollar. Nobody gives a damn about that vote if there's not money attached to it. And that's just the honest truth. And I usually have to learn the hard way that money is being prioritized over people. I've had to learn that the hard way so many times in my life. And in this situation, I am being reminded of that every single day. Again, you have to hit them where it hurts. You have to boycott the companies that are very literally paying for the weapons that are being used to eradicate the people in the Gaza Strip right now, 2.2 million Palestinians, innocent Palestinian lives, 40% of them children. That's the only thing that gets these people's attention is losing money. And so we just have to stick to the list of companies that are supporting Israel and truly never buy them again. For me, it's not hard. Starbucks is trash. I learned that years ago. I make my own coffee anyway, but Starbucks isn't good. The food isn't good. The coffee isn't good. It's Everybody should have realized that a long time ago, but now you have a, a better reason to focus on it, okay? Also, McDonald's, trash. I don't care if you like the way it tastes. It's literal poison. I can teach you how to make a McDonald's McChicken at home. In fact, I've actually had a video saved of me doing that very thing. What a perfect time to share that. And if you really want a burger, get a good one, okay? McDonald's isn't good food, so we're boycotting. We're never eating there again. We got to hit them in the pocketbook. So I'm grateful to Sola the Gem for reminding me of that. It's way more effective than calling our senators. And she just put it into words so beautifully. Like, they don't care. Biden already knows what he's doing, and he knows how the American people or how a certain subsect of the American people are going to feel about it. He's not going to be surprised by the number of calls coming in. The only thing that will get their attention is when they lose money. So we have to look into all of the ways for them to do that. And the other topic that I'm just going to dedicate today's episode to is amending something that I said in episode 18. I said, 
it would be so hard for me to explain the history of Zionism in that episode. It's based on thousands of years of racism against Jewish people. It's based on thousands of years of trauma, destruction, genocide. The things that we're witnessing right now happening in Gaza have happened to the Jewish population for thousands of years. How do I possibly, as a non-Jew, you know, fully encapsulate the history in a way is balanced in a way that hits all of the appropriate marks? And I just didn't feel that I was able to do that. Since then, I have found two examples of two people who have explained the history of Zionism in a concise yet thorough way. The first that I'm proud to share is an essay written by a friend of mine named Meryl Coker. She's an artist, she's a filmmaker, she's a writer, and she wrote such an incredibly cohesive and concise essay that really touches on the confusion and the complexities of this topic. What I really, really appreciate about her piece, well, is everything. It's gorgeous. And also that she isn't afraid to say that this is a complex issue. This is an issue that involves so many people, so many ideals, so many belief systems, many of which are in conflict with one another, and it's an issue that dates back thousands of years. There is complexity to it. And I'm seeing a lot of creators say, genocide isn't complex, condemn genocide, it's very easy. And I understand what people are going for when they're saying things like that, I do. And yet, this is a complex issue, and I admire people who are clear about that and who are ready to grapple with the complexities of it. I think we as people would do a lot better once we accept that big issues, global issues, important issues are complex. And so we get in there and we do the work to unravel them, to clarify them. She offers so much clarity and education on this topic from her lived experience. And I am honored that she is going to read her essay for us today. Here's Meryl Coker with her essay, Thoughts on Gaza. I woke up yesterday morning and saw the number 8,000 and immediately burst into tears. The morning before, it was 7,000. That means in those 24 hours, almost as many civilians died as on October 7th. If you believe that massacre justified this violence, then what violence do you think is justified now? At what point does an eye for an eye make the whole world blind? What ratio of dead Palestinian children to dead Israeli children will make you feel like the blood price has been fairly paid? Do you think those 8,000 dead deserved it because some percentage of them voted for Hamas in 2006? Do you think it's acceptable because Hamas uses human shields and therefore there's no other option but to sacrifice those human lives? To those of you who have been unilaterally supporting Israel, how many dead Palestinian civilians is too many? How far is too far? These aren't rhetorical questions. Israel's stated goal is to wipe out Hamas, but what is the civilian cost that you personally are willing to witness before you withdraw your vocal support? I'm genuinely curious. I hate that it feels obligatory to post qualifications when it comes to talking about this issue, but here are mine. I have both Middle Eastern Muslim and Jewish heritage. I've spent time in the West Bank and personally witnessed how the occupation plays out in the daily lives of Palestinians there. I have family in Israel, some of whom are currently serving in the IDF, and I've spent a lot of time trying to wrap my brain around the conflict in the region before this current wave of violence erupted. 
I'm by no means claiming to be an expert, but my personal views on Israel and the occupation were shaped by a first-hand experiences, not infographics I read last week on someone's Instagram story. The truth of it is, this conflict is nightmarishly complicated, but in many ways, it isn't. Yes, it involves thousands of years of history and context and decades of more recent tangles. The first paragraph of the Wikipedia article about the Palestinian Authority is likely word salad to most people who aren't familiar with the insider baseball of this situation. All of those details and nuances matter when trying to untangle the knot that is now tightening by the minute. But it doesn't require any context or historical understanding to be horrified by the deaths of thousands of children. There is no justification for that, no military strategy, no long-term goals, no greater good that is ever served by murdering thousands of children and leaving the rest of their generation with permanent trauma. That applies to Palestinian aspirations for statehood and freedom as well. This applies to Hamas's initial attacks on Israeli civilians, and it applies to the violence happening in Gaza right now. At this point, with this much entrenched violence, neither side can unilaterally claim the moral high ground. But with that said, there is a drastic power imbalance. Israel is practically a theocratic ethnostate backed by the United States militarily and financially. Its existence depends on it continuing to enforce apartheid, occupation, and oppression. I'm not using these words lightly. They are the words that exist to describe what has been happening in Gaza and the West Bank for decades. After traveling there, I came to realize that many of my Jewish friends who had only ever been to the region on birthright or for family events had a fundamentally flawed perception of what the West Bank is and was. For example, many of them were surprised to learn that Ramallah is a city with hip coffee shops and bars and culture. For context, American citizens can freely travel between Jerusalem and Ramallah. They're about as far apart as Los Angeles and Pasadena. But Israeli citizens aren't allowed through the checkpoints, so their perceptions of this neighboring city and the rest of the West Bank are shaped largely by fear and stereotypes. If you're not familiar with the following terms and concepts, now is a good time to Google them. Look up settler roads and Area A, Area B, and Area C. Read about building restrictions and demolitions in East Jerusalem and the West Bank. Research the history of each of the checkpoints and crossings into and out of the West Bank and Gaza, and think about how this might impact your own life if you had to live under these kinds of restrictions. Read about what it's like to fly into and out of Ben Gurion Airport as a Palestinian, which is the only functioning civilian airport in the entire region. If you don't know what Nakba is, Google that now. If you don't know what the Oslo Accords are, Google that now. Read about the settlements and the Six-Day War, and compare maps of what the borders look like in 1948, 1967, 1994, and today. It's okay if you didn't know about these things, and I know sometimes it's hard to even know where to start. But all of this information is available and accessible, and I really encourage anyone reading this who wants to learn more to do some research on some of the things I've mentioned here. Wikipedia is always a good jumping off point. Gaza has been blockaded by Israel and Egypt for almost 20 years now. I'm sure you've heard it referred to as an open-air prison. I've seen people say that it only is the way it is because of Hamas, that they could have built infrastructure and made it a beautiful and flourishing city. Even if that were true, my question still stands. Do civilians there deserve to die because of the failings of their governing body? I don't want this to turn into me arguing with a series of straw men, but I do want to address some of the points I've seen raised in support of Israel. And I want to start this by saying I understand the very real discomfort and fear many Jews around the world are experiencing right now. I'm experiencing it too. 
I've seen genuine anti-Semitism, and I've seen it coming from the left. I've seen videos and heard stories of protesters calling for and threatening violence against Jews. I've seen people in my own communities asserting, without a hint of irony, that Jews control the media and other old anti-Semitic tropes that are chilling to witness in 2023. When protesters chant, from the river to the sea, the implication there is the eradication of the state of Israel and the removal of the Jews from the region, presumably via violence. We could argue all day about whether or not Israel should have claimed statehood in the first place, but the reality is it exists there now. Generations have been born there with no other citizenship and no other home they've ever known. Calling for the eradication of Israel at this point is a call to massive amounts of violence and bloodshed. I understand that many Jews are reacting from a place of real fear and trauma when they hear this type of rhetoric. And as someone of Jewish heritage myself, I feel the very real fear and generational trauma of these subtle and overt anti-Semitic threats and suspicions. It feels personal and terrifying. It's crucial that those of us marching for Palestinian freedom here and in other parts of the world constantly check ourselves in the language we and others are using to ensure that we're not unwittingly allowing anti-Semitic rhetoric or concepts to creep into our talking points or calls to action. I've also seen a lot of well-intentioned leftists on both sides of this conflict comparing the situation to indigenous rights in the Americas or to BLM, but what's happening in Israel and Palestine doesn't fit neatly into an American political and racial narrative frame. It's worth noting that not all Israeli Jews are white or of European descent, and many of the ones that came to Israel were escaping direct persecution. It's not a simple narrative of race or white supremacy or indigenous rights, and the fact that I've seen these arguments used for both sides of this conflict should illustrate that the situation simply isn't as clear-cut, and these colonial narratives don't quite fit the same way. It's tough to reconcile the fact that someone like me, who is only a quarter Jewish and has never lived in the region, could move to Israel and claim Israeli citizenship and live freely in Jerusalem, while a Palestinian, whose family lived there for generations, including some who were born there, are not even allowed to visit. When I was in the West Bank, my experience was that the younger generation of Palestinians could and did make the distinction between Jews and Zionists, and between the people of Israel and their government. But many older ones did not, and I did see a pattern of a lack of distinction. To pretend there isn't very real anti-Semitism and calls to violence against Jews at play here is naive. But I've also seen just as many supporters of Israel refer to all Palestinians as terrorists, use the terms interchangeably, or say or imply that to live in Gaza, be Palestinian, or support a ceasefire is an implicit defense of Hamas and an endorsement of terrorism. As someone of Islamic and Middle Eastern heritage, this type of Islamophobia also feels personal and terrifying. It feels like it did post 9-11 when the specter of Muslim terrorists was used to dehumanize and justify violence against Arabs and Muslims around the world and to fund horrifyingly destructive wars. It's wild to see so many of my leftist and liberal friends and acquaintances comparing the October 7th attacks to 9-11 and Hamas to ISIS and Al-Qaeda and making the argument that if those wars were justified, so is this one. I thought we all agreed that the violent retaliation in the Middle East after 9-11 was a mistake not to be repeated. I've seen people use the phrase, free Palestine from Hamas, which is the same rhetoric used during the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Did we learn nothing from them? Did those wars create lasting peace and freedom in those countries? Was that ever really actually the aim of those wars? Do you truly believe that is the IDF's goal in Gaza now? 
to continue to address some of the talking points I've seen used in support of Israel's military action. I've seen people pointing out that Hamas oppresses people in Gaza and doesn't support LGBTQ rights, and therefore it's hypocritical for leftists around the world to call for a stop to the violence. It should go without saying, but calling for a ceasefire doesn't mean unilateral support of Hamas. But more importantly, human rights are human rights. There isn't some ideological bar that people or their governments have to clear before they are deemed worthy of the right to not be bombed. A government holding dangerous or bigoted beliefs isn't a justification for large-scale and indiscriminate violence against its citizens. And then there's the argument that Hamas is using Gazan civilians as human shields. I've even seen posts go so far as to say civilians in Gaza are allowing themselves to be used as human shields. I don't know how you could ever argue that a child could willingly allow for such a thing, but even if this were true, it doesn't make killing them any less heinous. It's a trolley problem played out on a massive scale, and the cost is real, living, human children and their families. I've seen people implying or outright saying that Gazans somehow deserve this because they voted for Hamas in 2006. I don't want to get too in the weeds on this one, but if you break it down, a very, very small percentage of Gazans actually voted for Hamas. And what's more, half the population of Gaza was either too young to vote back then or wasn't even born yet. Hamas consolidated their power in Gaza in 2007 via a bloody coup, and there haven't been free elections held there since. Also, there is plenty of evidence that Netanyahu tacitly allowed for Hamas's continued control of Gaza rather than allow the West Bank and Gaza to be consolidated under the control of the Palestinian Authority. Furthermore, even if every single Palestinian in Gaza wholeheartedly supported Hamas, I would argue that still wouldn't justify violence at this scale. This also applies to Israel. Israeli citizens don't deserve to die because their government is racist and violent. The people being held hostage in Gaza right now don't deserve to be used as bargaining chips by Hamas or as a justification for all this violence by Israel. Human lives should always be the priority. I've seen arguments that calling for a ceasefire would just empower Hamas to launch more violent attacks on Israeli civilians. Does the specter of potential hypothetical attacks justify the very real mass murder happening in Gaza right now? If the violence in Gaza continues, the likelihood of retaliation or an intifada in the West Bank increases, not the other way around. More violence doesn't make anyone safer, now or in the long run. And finally, I've seen people arguing that Jews are indigenous to Israel, therefore they have a right to defend their homeland by force. I've seen the exact same arguments in favor of Palestinians. We could argue for days about who was there first. The truth is, Arabs and Jews have both lived in the region for thousands of years and could make a supported case for their claim to the land. But practically speaking, there is no way, at this point, to make either population leave without enacting a large-scale genocide, which means that somehow or other, both populations need to find a way to peacefully coexist. And at this point, so much bloodshed has been enacted by both sides that I'm not sure any negotiation of such an arrangement could be entered with good faith from either side. How can you peacefully coexist with a population whose actions and words have shown that their goal is to eradicate your existence? Like I said earlier, it's two irreconcilable narratives. In Palestine, they're chanting, from the river to the sea. In Jerusalem, they have up banners that show the whole of the region labeled Israel, with the West Bank labeled Judea and Samaria. How can two directly contradictory narratives like this be reconciled peacefully? I genuinely don't know. I don't know what the solution is. I don't know how these populations coexist in the region without more violence. If there were a simple and clear solution, we wouldn't be where we are right now. It's a horrible nexus of all the reasons humans go to war. 
religion, land, ethnicity, race, ideology, resources, genocides, generational trauma, geopolitical strategy. It's a conflict that has truly brought out the worst of humanity. But I haven't seen any clear answers from Israel or its supporters to some of the more immediate questions. What is the end game? What happens in Gaza next? Assuming Hamas is eradicated, what then? Gaza will be in shambles with a traumatized, angry, and in all likelihood, radicalized population. An extended Israeli occupation is likely inevitable. The IDF is conducting raids in the West Bank now. It's entirely possible that new fronts of the war will open with Israel's other bordering countries. It's almost certain that this situation will get worse before it gets better. The question is, how much worse are we willing to allow it to get? I feel so helpless. I've donated to UNRWA and Doctors Without Borders, which are two humanitarian groups providing aid in Gaza right now. I don't know what else to do. I feel like even writing and sharing this is yelling into an echo chamber because the people who share my viewpoints already agree, and the people who don't are already too entrenched to back down. I'll probably upset some people for saying some of these things. I don't know if I'll change anyone's mind or educate anyone by sharing this. I just don't know what else to do. So well written, so compassionate, so informative. I also just appreciate that she's just she's going through it in the essay, you know, as I am in my attempts to accurately and helpfully talk about this subject. Something I lamented a few weeks ago is how pushback often with issues like this includes people saying like, well, what's your solution? then what would you do differently? And I like how Meryl touches on that. You know, we don't know what the solution is, but here's everything that it's bringing up for her from her incredibly relevant viewpoint and life experience. Thank you so much, Meryl, for writing that and for reading it for us today. Hearing it in your voice was even more powerful, and I thank you. To bookend that, I'm going to share a tweet thread that also does an incredible job of succinctly summarizing this issue that spans thousands of years in a way that I find to be cohesive, concise, and just really helpful and compassionate. I also shared this on my self-wife Instagram. Feel free to go there and read it along with me. This is written by a man named Raphael Mimoun. His website says that he works at the intersection of human rights and technology, and he founded a company called Horizontal, where they build tools and train on digital security. He says that he's passionate about building decentralized infrastructure that gives more agency, autonomy, and power to people and communities online and offline. He organizes with Crosswalk Collective LA, and he's currently researching how to create a world without prison. And he also is a writer, and he writes about movements and social justice and tech. And he has, in this 16th part Twitter thread, really done an incredible job of summarizing this issue from a former Zionist perspective. And I'm just going to read it to you now. His username on Twitter is Rafmim, R-A-P-H-M-I-M. He writes, I grew up in a Zionist household, spent 12 years in a Zionist youth movement, lived four years in Israel, and have friends and family who served in the IDF. When that is your world, it's hard to see apartheid when it's happening. I grew up in France, in a Jewish community where the norm was unconditional love and support for Israel. Zionism wasn't even named. 
because that's all we knew. Jews were nearly wiped by pogroms and repeated holocausts, and a Jewish state was the only way to keep us safe. All Zionism is rooted in trauma and fear. It is first and foremost an ideology of self-liberation. It's about loving Jewish people, survival for Jewish people. But Zionism is like any other ethnic nationalism. It's about prioritizing our safety and well-being. Like all nationalisms, we were fed a historical narrative completely divorced from reality, that Palestine was a largely uninhabited piece of desert before we settled it, that in 1948, Palestinians willingly left because they were making room for Arab armies to throw Jews to the sea that Arab leaders turned down all Israel and U.S. peace offers and were unwilling to share the land, that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, that despite terrorism, the IDF upholds the highest moral standards, and so on and so on. So the first reason that Israelis will never willingly make peace with Palestinians is that Israelis and Zionist Jews around the world live in a parallel world. They know alternate historical facts that feed more nationalism, militarism, and extremism. The second reason is that the past 100 years of conflict have dehumanized Palestinians in the eyes of Israeli Jews. I mean this in a literal way. Israelis are not able to empathize with Palestinians. They aren't able to comprehend Palestinian suffering. So when the IDF bombs Gaza and kills children, the average Israeli thinks that one, it is the Palestinians' fault for not agreeing to peace, for continuing to threaten and attack Israel, etc. And two, Israel is merely defending itself and that there is simply no alternative. The same rationale justifies Gaza's open-air prison, military checkpoints in the West Bank, bulldozing homes, etc. Israelis even made the term Pallywood because for them, it's all a show to turn the world against Israel. The suffering is either fake or self-inflicted. Of course, there are some Israeli leftists and anti-Zionists who fight for Palestinian liberation, but it's a tiny and shrinking minority. Most Israelis don't consider what it means for Palestinian freedom, dignity, and physical well-being to be systematically erased. Israel is, by every definition, an apartheid state. If a Jew and an Arab commit the exact same crime in the West Bank, they will face two different legal systems. The Jew will face a civil court. The Arab will face a military court. Two legal systems for two ethnic groups. But Israelis can't fathom that this is unjust. When they fight against people calling the occupation of the West Bank apartheid, it's because Israelis genuinely believe that it's all self-defense and needed and legitimate. These two factors, alternate history and dehumanization, mean that it is physically impossible, and I mean that in the most literal way, for Israel to willingly end the occupation and agree to a just solution on the conflict. Peace cannot come from within Israel. Israeli society is getting more extreme, more nationalistic, more violent, and more entrenched in its own historical narrative and its own self-victimization. At this point, it is simply delusional to expect that change will come from Israel. The only thing that can bring Palestinian liberation is if the cost of the occupation outweighs its benefits. And that requires, just like for the apartheid in South Africa and the U.S. South, massive external pressure. That means consumer boycott of Israeli goods, 
corporate boycott of Israeli technology, and sanctions by Israel's main trade partner and political supporters, the U.S. and the EU. Those are the only measures that can meaningfully push Israel toward ending the occupation. He does an incredible job explaining why this is such a sticking point for Zionists. And he does an incredible job getting to the core of the issue, which is that we've got to hit them in the pocketbooks. To get a list of companies to boycott, you can go to bdsmovement.net. BDS is the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, and it works to end international support for Israel's oppression of Palestinians, and it pressures Israel to comply with international law because they are committing war crime upon war crime every minute of every day. When you visit the website, it gives you a list of companies to boycott, some of which are HP, Simons, AXA, Puma, SodaStream, Sabra, the hummus company. And just doing some more Googling Coca-Cola, Nestle, like I said earlier, McDonald's and Starbucks. Those are some organizations to boycott. Go ahead and do your own Googling, get a list and boycott these companies, especially if you've already called your senators numerous times, let's say, like myself, especially if you have already donated or can't donate. Just boycotting these companies is where our power is right now. And once again, it doesn't feel like enough, but but it really is something that we can do. I'm seeing so many TikToks of just empty Starbucks locations and news of, of various Starbucks locations closing down, which is pretty wild considering the history of Starbucks and how there truly will be two across the street from each other in a lot of places. I'm also going to platform another creator. He goes by St. Levant on TikTok he speaks to the argument of, but Hamas, Hamas is a terrorist organization. This is all because of Hamas. I'm going to play his words here. Do me a favor and send this video to someone that keeps standing. But Hamas, 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 Hamas. Because I don't think that these people understand that they're taking part in the collective dehumanization of Palestinians. And this is an old colonial tactic. Because by using words like this, children of light, children of darkness, law of the jungle, or saying things like this. <laughs> It becomes much easier to justify oppression to the average person. In the 20th century, they had eugenics, which basically was like a science where white people tried to prove that they were superior to black people. They would measure the brain and shit, it was crazy. But there was academic literature on this. The reason why there was academic literature and people would go back and forth on whether or not white people and black people were the same is because if they were not the same, then it's much easier to justify something like segregation because black people are scientifically inferior to white people in their logic. Now in the 21st century, alhamdulillah, we don't have eugenics anymore, but we have officials of the Israeli government calling us savages animals and the reason why they call us animals and barbaric and stuff is because they want to justify our oppression they want to justify to the average person the cutting off of electricity water gas by the way you can buy the shirt i'm wearing or a hoodie and 100 of the proceeds go to palestinian children in gaza remember nelson mandela was considered a terrorist until he became a hero martin luther king Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, the list goes on. The Palestinian struggle is a 75-year struggle for liberation. It's a 75-year struggle for human rights. So the next time someone tells you about Hamas, 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 just ask them if Palestinians deserve human rights or are we too barbaric? Let me know what they say. I hope that some of the information by these brilliant creators and writers that have shared today has educated you, has clarified something for you, and or has inspired you to, let's say, boycott a list of companies. 
I personally do feel that it's our responsibility as humans right now to be tuning into this and to be caring. Like I posted today on my self-wife Instagram, we are living in the pages of a history book right now. Everyone that comes after us will read about this. This is big and how you engage will be something that's talked about forever. My encouragement for you is to engage in a way that feels meaningful to you. Remember to be taking extra good care of yourself right now. I'm going to leave you with the brilliant words of another creator who is on TikTok as Lady Speech. Dear baby activists, coming from someone who's been in the game for over 20 years, let's talk. One of the most revolutionary things that you can do is take care of yourself. For the enemy wants you tired and confused. You make more mistakes this way. Remember that you are best for the cause and for the people when you are firing from all of your cylinders. If you have the privilege, the time, and the space to take a moment, to take a minute, to take eight hours, take them and take care of yourself. Taking care of yourself does not mean you're running away from what's happening. Taking care of yourself does not mean ignore the atrocities that are going down. Taking care of yourself does not mean that we are acting like these things don't exist. Taking care of yourself allows you to be your best for the cause and for the people. I used to teach self-defense. And one of the first things I taught people when I taught self-defense is that no matter what's going on, you have to find a moment to bring it in and to breathe. You have to find a moment where you can get centered, where you can send the oxygen to your brain and to your body so you can think clearly about what needs to be done and so your body can do what needs to be done when it's time to do it. As a survivor, I can tell you that those moments can mean the difference between life and death. Take a break, take a moment, take a minute when you need to, if you can, and take care of yourself as best as you can. This will only make you better for yourself, for the cause, and for the people. I wanna thank Sola the Gem, Raphael Mamoon, Lady Speech, and St. Levant for sharing your words with the world. And I especially want to thank Meryl Coker for what she wrote and for reading it for us in her own voice here today. Take what Lady Speech said to heart. Take extra good care of yourself right now. Everybody needs it. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next week.